Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. With that said, I'm excited uh, this morning. You get to hear from our good friend Jenny Loveland. Do you guys guys love Jenny? If you don't know Jenny, uh, you're in for a treat. She's just one of our... She's, she's one of our leaders around here, and um, uh, it's, it's awesome to see her as, she's, as she ministers the word uh, and teaches. And uh, we've been in a conversation the last several weeks talking about what is the heart of discipleship, or what is the heart of a follower of Christ? How do we posture ourselves? How can we continue to be those who are participating with what Jesus is doing um, on the earth, right? And uh, actively going where he's going. And so, this morning, if you guys are stoked to hear the Word of God, can you welcome with me Jenny Loveland to bring the Word this morning? Wow. If you are stoked, please stand up and do 10 jumping jacks. Yeah, come on. Sweet, this is awesome. This is awesome. Yeah. I don't know if that's 10, but you're good. You're good. How are you guys? I mean, better now. Your blood's moving. Worship was awesome. And it's February. Does anybody else feel like January was the longest month in the history of 2017? I mean, seriously. (laughs) Right? I know a few of you know exactly what I'm saying. Rush through the holidays. Get to January. Woo, it's a new year everything slows down and it's winter and my husband and I thought it was an awesome time in January to take a little getaway to Chicago yeah fortunately we lived there for 10 years so you know we have that layer of warmth going on that comes in the form of all full length clothing Um, but it was actually really fun I will say that I think it was 16 degrees and with a windshield, like negative 16. So it was a good time. But anyway, it's February, and I'm super excited to be back here with you guys. So it's good to see you. And just as Luke mentioned, we've been talking about discipleship, which I loved. And we talked a little bit about how following Jesus sometimes means leaving things behind, even things that seem meaningful. And that when we are a disciple of Jesus, it's not just about a spiritual event. It's that Jesus and his kingdom are at work everywhere we go. And it's just waking up to the awareness of that truth. And so today, we're going to talk about a paradigm shift and how discipleship is more than the words and the works of Jesus, but it's about the way. And it's the way that Jesus brings our words and our works together to produce growth and longevity in our lives. So y'all ready for that? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are for us right now, today. And Father, I just bless all of our spirits to be open and aware to the new character, to the new nature of who you are for us today. 
I bless your word to go deep, for your truth to be alive. And Holy Spirit, we just give you full permission to come and minister your way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with some scripture. If you would open your Bibles to John 8. We're going to actually look at, for me, one of the most amazing examples of the way of Jesus. John 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and no one but the woman and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I think, especially as a woman, I really relate to the tenderness that Jesus expressed to this woman. I mean, if we can just imagine that she's being brought in total transparency of her shortcomings before these people who are ready to stone her. And I think it's interesting that what they focus on with Jesus to test him and who he really is, is whether he's going to follow the law, the written word of Moses. It says that if she is found in adultery, she must be stoned. What do you say? But see, Jesus, he's a new way. And he does something very interesting. And this is a little side bonus here. He exercises one of the most amazing weapons of warfare. He totally ignores them. Seriously. Do you know that when the voice of accusation is coming at you, that one of the most powerful things you can do is simply ignore? Ignore. So he lets them go on and yak their thing about exactly she, her behavior was this, and so we must do this. This is what happened, and this is what it says, and this is what the resulting behavior is. And he gives them some time to go with that, and then he asks them, so which one of you 
is without sin. And I love that it says that once they heard with their conscience, that deep conviction that only Jesus can bring simply by asking one question. And they don't say anything, do they? They just begin to slowly walk away. And then even greater is that Jesus waits until he's alone with this woman, who I'm sure is broken and scared and shaking and trembling. He waits till he can be intimate with her. And he says, where are your accusers? And I'm sure he said it with the most gentle look in his eyes. And she says, no one, they're not here, Lord. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And so we have a powerful contrast of the law that says your behavior must be taken care of by this, that, and the other thing versus I love you. Do you understand? I'm asking you a question. Do you understand what just transpired here? Oh my gosh, yes, Lord, I do. Then don't sin anymore. And I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, throwing stones at your children or your spouse or whoever is not doing something the way that you want them to do doesn't exactly work out. (laughs) It, It takes a little bit better root if we actually speak to them in a place that explains and says, do you understand? Yeah, I do. So maybe we don't need to do that anymore? Yeah, I don't think we do. His kindness leads us into repentance, and his way of being with us right where we are brings down our walls, and his way of guiding and instructing us leads us into a transformation of heart. So can we all agree that oftentimes it's not what we say, but it's the way we say it? Parents, couples, it's not what you said, it's the way you said it. It's not that you didn't clean the dishes. It's the way you clean the dishes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so it can be difficult to know what the right or helpful way is sometimes. But the good news is that Jesus has a revolutionary way. His way of doing things. And as his disciples, we don't only experience his way of doing things, but we experience his way of being and the way that he sees others. Yeah? Amen. So why does the way matter? Well, it's common to see in different groups, job situations, you name it, where we're trying to lead a group of people into increased skill or greater knowledge, that our success or our quality is measured by our increased knowledge and then our resulting behavior. So I'm going to give you a little story about this. I was a heptathlete in college. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's the insanity to decide to compete in seven different track and field events at one time. I mean, not at the same time, but you know. But one of the craziest things in the heptathlon and the decathlon is the javelin throw. I mean, seriously. You are running with a long pole that has a sharp point at the end And then hurling it 
into this, the air, and as long as you get this nice arch, it sticks into the ground. I mean, can, like, that's a little bit dangerous, right? <laughs> and so if I came in here today and brought everybody a javelin and stood up here and taught you the technique to throw a javelin, and then at the end of it gave you all a chance that, all right, everybody stand up and throw. How do you think that would go? I'm a little bit scared, because I'm up here. <gasps> that might be a little bit <laughs> bloodbath, could we say? I don't know. But it wouldn't work very well, because all I did was come up here and teach you how, and then said, and now I'm going to pass or fail you based on your accuracy and your distance, and we are done. And if you pass, you may go home. And if you fail, I don't know. That wouldn't be very effective. But if I let you throw it, and then took each one of you and said, okay, Gwen, that was pretty good, but maybe a little bit higher in the air so we're not throwing it right to the person in front of you. Or if I said, Didi, great form, but could we like follow through? Because when you follow through, you get more distance. And Luke, can we run a little bit faster? A little, little more turnover here. Okay, everybody now try again. You probably would do it to some degree better because now I'm showing you the way. I'm not just instructing you and then saying, now the way that you do it is what you get a grade on or how you get scored. And so just as throwing the javelin is measured by its accuracy and its distance, in the church, we can often do the same thing when we look at discipleship. We commit to learning the words of Jesus, and we do the things of Jesus. But perhaps we're not really understanding the way of Jesus. And so you might even say you could be leading a group of people in a, in a study, and someone could come to you and be like, well, you know, they're not living like this, so you're a failure. Hmm. That doesn't sound like the way of Jesus at all. And in 11 years of ministry, I've seen that just by focusing on learning the words and trying to get people to behave and obey in a certain way doesn't exactly pr produce the most fruitful and sustaining disciples. You guys hear what I'm saying? You starting to feel that paradigm shift? I'm not saying that the word and our obedience is not important, because it is. In fact, it's an essential element to following Jesus, but it's not the only thing. We can try harder, we can study more, we can monitor our obedience, we can have accountability partners or, you know, whatever it is that we put in place to help us behave and look like Jesus, but this doesn't get to the root of who we are or why we do what we do. And Jesus isn't the Burger King. Have it your way. No, he's the king of transformation, the king of restoration, the king of resurrection. He is the king who is coming and inviting us into his way so that we can live transformed lives. 
Not just so we can do something or look better. Because that's all about us, honestly. That's in our willpower to say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk this way. I'm going to do things this way. But really inside, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm feeling, hasn't changed at all. And I don't know if any of you have worked with people who are trying to get past an addiction or something like that, but if we just say, stop doing it, just stop doing that. And here's why you should stop doing that. I'll give you a big teaching on that. Just stop. It doesn't work for very long. It might work for a little bit. But if we ask them to start questioning why, why do you feel like this is an addiction for you? Why do you feel like you keep coming back to this thing? Now we start looking at the way. So Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can speak, we can prophesy, we can move mountains, we can give outrageously and sacrificially all we want. But if we don't have or operate in love, we're nothing but a squeaky wheel. And when we talk about discipleship, we don't want to just patch up our best effort. We want to fix the squeaky wheel. We want that to be repaired in its entirety. So then if love is the necessary element that Paul's talking about, is love the way? John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples about his coming exit. And he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Sounds like maybe love is the It's the fruit, right? It's the way. It's the outward sign that we are. It's the way we're seen, the way we've been loved first. And in turn, it's the way that we do things with others. And then further down, the text continues, and I love that these two kind of end cap this section. In John 14, Peter's asking Jesus where he's going and why he can't come, and Jesus responds in verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you will know, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And I'm telling you to love one another as I have loved you. And where, how do we get to where we're going? I am the way. See, we kind of have this like boomerang thing going on. Oh, okay, so I love one another and I'm like you. And then Jesus is the way. And the way that Jesus is the way that I love one another. And the way that I love one another is the way. So when we are a disciple, we're loving one another as Jesus has loved us first. And we know the way through him, not just into salvation, but into living a life full of truth that becomes more like him. And I think that this is an interesting place to note that some of us, I mean, I know for me, that was kind of what I grew up with. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, those who believe in him, you're like, oh, okay, so I, I believe in Jesus, and that's the way to heaven. Here's my ticket. 
But it's so much more than that. I am the way and the truth and the life. And they will know that you're my disciple if you are loving one another as I have loved you. That's the way. It's not just about your salvation. That's an important place to start because guess what? That like turns on the phone to hear what he's saying. So this brings our knowledge and our words together with our works and our behavior. And this is what we're going to refer to right now as the word, works, way, paradigm. I have a slide for you because pictures are worth a thousand words. But some of the leadership team, we've been digging into this discipleship stuff. And this is an awesome tool to bring this together, okay? So we have the words, which is the content or what we know up here. Our works is our competence or what we do, our actions, behavior, obedience, all those things I've said. And the way is our character, and it's about the heart. And see, when we just focus on discipleship as being about memorize this and do this, we completely miss the full loop here. There's a total disconnect. And that triangle can't be complete without the way. And the interesting part is that when we are in the way, then those works and those words start to take a whole greater depth of life. Love is the key element in the words and works of Jesus. This leads us into his way. It's the heart of what we know and how we are disciples as followers of Christ. But this isn't the popular or common method we see today. You know, we primarily in our culture measure the productivity of an organization or a group based on their knowledge and their behavior. Like at work, you're going to have your quarterly review and it's going to be based on how well you've learned to do your job and in turn how well you're doing it. And then maybe if we score you high enough, we'll give you a raise. Maybe. But the problem with this is that we're challenged to assess a person's motivation or their expectation. What are they expecting to do with their job? We don't talk about that a lot. They might ask you one or two questions like, what is it that you want to achieve here? But like, what is it that you want to fully encounter while you're here? And right now, just as Luke was mentioning, there are a lot of controversial topics to see how people respond to the way or the what of what people are doing or saying. Our first reaction is generally to criticize or support based on what we know and what we see. But how many of us really are willing to ask ourselves, what is the motivation behind this? And what is the expectation of myself and the person? And in turn, asking myself that same question. Because then you move into a place of not reacting to something that you see or you read or what somebody says. You turn into a place of responding. I mean, seriously. If you're on any form of social media, you totally see this playing out, right? I mean, it's like, I don't, I, there's probably at least a dozen of my friends who are like, I am so done with social media right now. Like, it's gone, it's off my phone because it's crazy. And you can, whatever, and if you want to look for something, you're going to find it. 
You know, I want, I, this is how I feel, and this is what I'm going to look for, and I'm going to find it. Because that's what I know, and that's what I see, and so that's what I'm going to do. But if we actually paused for a minute, and we questioned our workplace, our boss, a motivation, and said, what, like, what's really going on here? Because I don't want to just react. I don't know why my boss is like this. But maybe I need to ask a couple of questions, because maybe if I understand why he's so stressed out all the time that I do things exactly this way, maybe I can start to understand, and maybe I can be helpful in this with what he's expecting. So one of the clearest illustrations of this way of discipleship that Jesus has given me personally is at my home, that simple old place of home. And when my husband and I bought our house, it was going to auction. So needless to say, it had been incredibly neglected. And so the first thing we did was we cleaned it out. We gutted everything out so that it could have a fresh start. And then we built things according to the needs of our growing family. And then after we got that established and we moved in, we started to look at the outside of the house, the yard, Oh my gosh, there was so much, like, old refrigerators. I don't know, I can't even remember half the things that were just hanging out in the yard. Because, you know, that's cool, a refrigerator in the yard. (laughs) And then we started cleaning up, like, the debris in the planting areas and things like that, the, the lawn. It was so thick, you guys, that, like, when we raked up these leaves... It just, the stench of mold literally would knock you on your feet. It was so thick. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, how could nobody, like, ever rake anything? But our neighbors kept telling us, oh my gosh, that they had lived there, you know, in the block for a long time. This used to be the most incredible yard. These people did all this work. They planted all these flowers and these trees. And there's, like, we have, like, five different types of fruit trees. They're not doing anything. They're all, like, weird and scraggly. And so as we began to clean it up, I had to learn about the things in the yard. I don't know anything about fruit trees. And then I'd see, like, a little patch of irises or tulips, like, trying to come through the weeds and everything, And so I learned about how to separate bulbs and then transplant them so they could have more life. And I'd take those bulbs and I'd put them in the ground and I'd bury them deep and be like, yes, and I'm going to have flowers here and here and here and here. And next year, I got like one little bud out of the like 30 bulbs that I transplanted. And it's like this little itty bitty. And I mean, you're like, yay, come on, little buddy. But that was it. Like, there wasn't even a second friend for him. It was just this one little flower. Go back to, okay, what am I? I am like the worst gardener in the world. Like, what is going on here? So it's like, well, generally when you transplant something or you move it to a new place, it has to establish. It has to take root for it to grow and to thrive. And so the next year, to my surprise, there's not only one flower, but there's like six in a bunch, and they're bigger flowers. And so this process has been going on for six years that we've been there now, I guess, five or six. The fruit trees are crazy, but they only come every other year. 
which is very interesting because they know their season. Those flowers knew they could grow. They just had to be nurtured. And then I'd be like cleaning up another area, thinking about a place that I needed to put mulch or whatever. And I'd look over and there'd be this, this flower, this plant that I have no clue what it is, nor have I done anything with it, emerging from the soil. Amazing flowers that I've never heard of, coming out of nowhere because I had done work in the garden. I had been cleaning it up. I had been tending soil. And the things that I thought were dead or that the people who knew they were there before thought were dead were coming alive. Do you see what I'm saying here? This is the way of Jesus with us. He is the vine dresser, okay? He says, God is the vine dresser and you are the vine. And when he tends with us in our garden of our heart and of our soul, Things come alive. Things take root. Things blossom greater. And bonus, when you start working in that way with him in that garden, you get things coming up that you never even expected. Amazing miracles in your life happening, and you're not even praying for it. Provision coming out of places you never thought were possible. Because you're focusing on tending to what Jesus is saying. This is where I want you to pl- the plant. This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to clean up. This is what I want you to, in faith, put in the ground. And yes, you might expect it to come up looking like this amazing thing like this. But that's not my way. Sometimes it is. But do you trust me that it's going to grow? Do you trust me that the seeds that I'm planting in your life are going to be fruitful? They know their season. And sometimes we want it to be in a season that it's not ready for. So as disciples, we abide in Jesus so we can grow more into his beautiful masterpiece. And this is the way he is. It's the way he sees and works with us. And it's the way he is teaching us to become more like him in love. And so if we know the way of Jesus, then you might ask today, Well, how can I become the same kind of person as Jesus? It's not just about listening to his words. It's not just about acting like him out of willpower. But it's becoming like him in mind and heart. So that our obedience and our works flow from a joyful and spontaneous place of life. It's learning how to see like him. It's learning how to posture ourselves with others like him. It's learning how to do things like him. Like that woman caught in adultery. That is an amazing example to look at how Jesus postures himself with people, where they're at, what they're dealing with, the hurt that they have, the sin they committed. He's not mocking them. He's not like, oh, I can't believe you did this. In fact, he's asking, where are your accusers? Because I'm here. And I'm going to clean this up with you. And when you're speaking to someone who's in that place that's in the heart, can we be intimate? Can we connect? Can we not, you know, be standing up here barking at each other? When you go to respond on on Facebook, can you think for a second, what is it that I'm trying to say here? 
Am I just trying to make my voice heard? Or am I trying to speak life? And what am I doing? And why am I doing it? The cheerful giver, right? We don't just give because. We give because something happens. We give out of compassion. We help and serve one another out of compassion. That's the way of Jesus. So let's do this. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us where we can each begin to know the way. Because you got to start somewhere. And maybe today, you just need to start in the garden. Maybe you just need to know how he sees you, how he is with you. Maybe he is asking you to tend to some places in your life. Maybe he's asking you to clean something up. Maybe he's asking you to just wait faithfully and trust that what he's planted will grow. And maybe you have your garden flourishing in some places, but you've forgotten to look around. Because the unexpected life of Christ is blossoming everywhere. And so maybe it's thinking about who you can be with, who you can meet like that adulteress. So why don't we all stand up for a minute, if you would, please. And let's just place our hands in a receiving posture. And just as we sang, heaven, come down, come. There is a tangible feeling of the Lord's presence right now. And so, Father, would you just bless this room to be filled with your tangible touch right now. That everyone in here is receiving your hand, your gaze, your heart, the gentleness in your voice, Lord. And Jesus, would you just allow the Holy Spirit right now to minister to everyone's heart individually, God, the places that you want to tend with them. Give them a picture, a song, a word, a face. You know their language, Lord, and I just bless them to receive right now in Jesus' name. And now, Jesus, would you minister to everyone in this room the thing that you've showed them? And would you give them a tool in that garden to go out and be in your way? Maybe it's a shovel to start digging the soil. Maybe it's a watering can to start watering places. Maybe it's a book to learn more about the life that's growing right in front of them. 
Maybe it's a season. And if everyone would just in faith take that tool and put your hand on your heart and let's pray. Jesus, you are so amazing. And you are so kind. And you are so gentle with us right where we are, Father. And we receive, God, your way in us today that we would begin to manifest in our very being, that we would begin to see with new eyes, we would begin to feel with a new heart, we would begin to hear with new ears, God, your way right now where we are today, Father. And Lord, we hold those things in our heart, and we confess and we surrender and we say, Jesus, have your way in me. Have your way in me. I trust you. And Lord, I bless everyone that even as they leave here today, that you would be showing them the surprise plantings in the garden. That you would begin to show them that things that they've buried are taking root and blooming with life. And we just thank you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.